Hi, I'm Frankie Frayne, and I've been making movies since I was a kid. I've made three low-budget feature films of varying success, and I went to film school. Twice. For better or worse, I've developed a science for completing feature-length projects on pocket change, and it has a lot to do with the kinds of conversations you'll hear on this podcast with teachers, friends, and artists. You don't have to pay 40 grand a year for bad advice. This is Discount Film School. Welcome back to Discount Film School. I'm talking to Rob Morrison today, uh, who I know chiefly as an actor and more so a comedic actor. Rob, I know you from that. I'm a fan of three major things that you've done. I'm oh, going wow. na- to name them now. Okay. <laughs> the first one's a long time ago. Okay. What's up, Talking Bicycle? Yeah, that one really destroyed some family relations for me. Are you serious? <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, maybe, maybe a little bit. I had an uncle in from out of town to see the college comedy troupe show that 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 video was featured in, and he really wanted the authentic college comedy experience. And I, I warned him before the show, like, "Hey, there's this video in the show. It's a little. It's like the most offensive thing we've ever done." And he's like, "No, it's all gonna be fine. It's all gonna be fine. I want the real. I want the real experience." Mm. And then, uh, yeah, like sure enough, after the show, he like barely talked to me and just looked at me like I was. Uh, you know, a, a rapist, which is essentially what that that video is about. So yeah, so any- I guess I did my job. So anybody who who hasn't heard of it or hasn't seen it, it's I think it's it's on YouTube. But I think um, it still is. Yeah, yeah it's basically um, Rob Rob does the voice of a talking bicycle that it kind of starts off as sort of a PSA. The bicycle kind of advises uh, young kids away from drugs and away from things that would get them in trouble. Uh, (laughs) But then he also uh, kind of um, knocks them unconscious and lures them to a big fat rapist uh, at at a dump. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But but what I love is, is, uh, and you've, you've, um, your voice has kind of done a lot for you, I think, over the years. Because, like, that, it, you, you very much have that wholesome uh, a talking bicycle sort of thing going on. I remember, right. I remember you, did a, you did a little anime. It was the dumbest fucking thing. It's maybe, like, 20 seconds long. You did it with Jeb Heil. This little thing about nouns. Nouns. A noun is a special kind of word. Yeah. Like a person, place, or thing, and like an adjective or verb. It could be waffles or corn pops. Yeah, I'm surprised you remember that. That Pancakes was a Pancakes or flip flops. Flip flops. Yeah. Was, <laughs> did you say it was a big video? No, it was not a big video. Oh. It, was such, it was such a quick thing. Um, and you're right, it was very stupid, but uh, it was, that was a lot of fun to do. That was, yeah, I guess talking about my my forays into animation well i also do you know john ford yeah yeah, yeah. We, we were friends in uh, la right i voiced a character on his channel 101 uh pilot uh wasn't it brad logan dolphin prince mm-hmm. which i think only ran for one episode i was timothy this uh timid seahorse who was always really worried about about what brad was getting himself into um so yeah, I have done some uh, a, f- a few animation things before that, but now I'm actually doing. Uh, you know, we haven't really moved into this part of the conversation yet, but uh, since we're talking about uh, animation and voice, I am doing voices for uh, a PBS kids cartoon that starts airing this fall called Peg Plus Cat, about a little girl and her pet cat that go on adventures involving math and problem solving. And I'm playing uh, 20 different characters in the show, probably over 20 at this point. They keep adding them. A lot of them are recurring. I'm playing a bunch of pirates and uh, farm animals and space monsters and stuff. And it's a pretty good time. That's amazing. And it's yeah. also a great opportunity to 
bring uh, Talking Bicycle back into uh, a series. <laughs> right? I'll, I'm going to talk to them about that. <laughs> tell, tell them about his huge following and see if that sways their opinion. Just at say, all. look, I did a kid's program in college. It's called <laughs> What's Up Talking Bicycle. I think you should check this out. <laughs> That's really cool, though. So, so you're doing uh, many voices on it? That's the idea? It's like you're a hired voice actor? Yeah. So basically they have um, – like there's there is – a nine-year-old girl who plays the little girl in the show. And then there's this, um, this older guy that plays the cat, her pet cat. And then other than like one or two other actors that play just one role, um, it's me and this ever, this other guy, Kevin Delagula, who also lives in New York, um, just being quote, the swing actors, which I've never heard used in, in this, uh, capacity before, but I guess it means just to like basically cover all the other roles Mm -hmm. that come up. Um, so yeah, I'm basically just any, any random character that waltzes in for a line or two. That's me. But I also have a number of characters that, uh, like an entire episode script is based around, like I'm playing Beethoven in one episode where Peg and her cat find themselves in like, uh, in Vienna in, you know, whatever, whatever year that might've been trying to help Beethoven write his, uh, his fifth symphony and like the idea of patterns uh, that, 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 uh, Da, 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 da. Like the whole the whole episode's based around patterns. It's actually a pretty clever, pretty cute show. Yeah, that's a, that sounds really fun. I, I I have to watch now because Rob Morrison's on it. Mm-hmm. This fall, PBS Peg Plus Cat. That's really really cool. Um, yeah. and you were kind of destined for it, really. I mean, to be honest, I I'd like to think that yeah. I I'd always wanted to do voice acting. Um, ever since I was a kid, I think I remember when I saw the the Disney Robin Hood, um, with all the, you know Pat Bertram and all those those old voice dudes, uh, Phil Harris and just be like, ah, oh, like that must be the best job ever to yeah. like create all those characters. And, um, and then when I moved to New York, I kind of discovered like, Oh shit, like this, it's actually a really, uh, it's a tough industry to break into. Um, it's usually, especially in the animation world, it's like the same 10 people yeah. doing everything. Um, <laughs> but thankfully, you know, with PBS, it's kind of, it's a non-union, work environment so they work with kind of a different set of people yeah. um and I, I just i fell into this last fall and i've been doing voiceovers for a few commercials here and there as well um yeah i was gonna ask if like do you have to be sag to work for pbs but obviously it's non-union yeah it's all outside yeah so how did how did you get that gig i mean do you just go in for an audition and get it or what what's the story well that one the, i mean i have not been submitted for that many uh animation auditions that was one of, that was basically i think the first animation audition i'd ever been on i got it through my uh commercial agent who also excuse me who also submits me for voiceover and uh i basically you know i found out maybe a week in advance i had a bunch of sides a song that i had to do all all demonstrating you know a number of different kind of voices like this and things that are all sort of over the all over the place yeah um and yeah, I kind of panicked and was like, I can't do that many voices. And my girlfriend actually was very good about being like, babe, you're in Avenue Q. You can do a lot of voices. You're going to be fine. Uh, so she kind of worked with me on, on my audition material. So I went in and, uh, I felt like I had a good audition. And then, uh, sure enough, like, I guess maybe a week later, I got a call back and had to do all new voices for all new characters. Um, and then I didn't hear anything for a couple weeks. And then I, I booked it and started recording. That's so awesome. So, yeah. so I want to com- I want to complete my trifecta of fandom. Oh yes, yes, please. Um, <laughs> so, so the second one is um, 
uh, Drink Me Up, the theme song to Street Team Massacre. Oh, yeah. Uh, which, now, now uh, confirm or deny, you wrote that without even really knowing the plot of the movie, right? Um, I think that's more or less true. Yeah, they, they'd kind of, like, told me... I think that they'd given me a rundown, uh, a, a basic synopsis of the plot. Yeah. Um, but it had been probably, like, a month or two since I'd received that, and... Yeah, the song really doesn't bear any resemblance to the 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 act the actions of the story. No, nor should it really um, <laughs> yeah, no. for that kind of movie. But I, I I have to like totally confess I love that song so much, and um, I mean it it slowed down over the years. But there was a period of time there where it it, it was in every playlist that uh that I had for for <laughs> wow. running and for every no it's it's wow a, thanks yeah, it's a good workout song right yeah, exactly I I have to drink <laughs> me up. You're right, exactly. Uh, but I loved it. Was a uh, it, it had that kind of um, you know it, 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 there's there's a major energy to the song, but it also has these really empty lyrics <laughs> about like oh, yeah, it's like it's it was super kind of like misogynistic <laughs> yes. and just like you don't want to be in the kind of relationship that the speaker of that song is in or like have his worldview towards women but like he that's basically, just he, he, really, chose to write from. he just wants a girlfriend to to bring her around and show her how hot show everyone how hot she is and yeah. then that somehow has something to do with the title of the film <laughs> <laughs> right exactly and there's like there's like vague references to like there's a war out there, like it's a nasty world. It's something like that, but like it's never really spelled out what that is. It it it's, it was also like you know musically produced really well, and and you of course are an awesome vocalist for it. But so did you? Do you record like do you do lots of stuff like that? I mean, it sound you must have been well practiced. Well, at that time, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't really done more work like that, like songs on commission like that. That was a lot of fun. I mean, I wrote the chords. And the melody, and I, I sang the, the vocal track, and basically I sent that to uh, the fr our friend and co-collaborator, I think Dan Gross is his name. It's been a while since I've been in, in contact with him, and he he sort of produced the rest of that of that track. Um, but I think even he might have still even used my original guitar track in there and just kind of resynced some of it because I'm sure it wasn't uh, particularly in rhythm. But um, <laughs> Uh, I haven't done a whole lot of other stuff like that. I am involved. Uh, I'm, I'm a member of a folk rock band here in New York called The Hollows. Uh, we're six piece with four different lead singers and songwriters, and I'm one of those. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of musically that's that's kind of my, my bread and butter now. Um, but uh, yeah, I, ha I haven't really done like theme songs for other programs or anything like that. It's it's been a while. I used to kind of stretch and challenge myself more like that, and like the What's Up Talking Bicycle theme. Yeah. I wrote uh, things like that. I used to write music in a sketch comedy uh, sensibility, I guess. And now um, it's, it's, it's just too difficult to uh, move past the, the folk rock stuff. I have to spend enough time on that as it is. Yeah, right. Um, and, then, and then finally, we, um, we both were actors on a, uh, a, a doomed, failed film. Um, uh, Brain Eating Aliens was what it was called. And we all we went out into the snow, and uh, we froze our asses off. We were, ended up in an extremely dangerous situation um, where we were supposed to be shooting in a warm, uh, energized cabin. Uh, but, but oh yes, okay. It took me a second to remember this. Now I totally remember. But nobody could get to it because it, it was all snowed in, and and nobody had scoped that out in advance. So you show up, and uh, you're either going to shoot a movie dangerously, or you're going to go home. 
And half of, half of the people went home, and half the people stayed. Luckily, the cast and some of the crew, at least the most critical crew, stayed. <clears throat> and we did shoot the film the next morning. Um, but first, we stayed overnight in, yeah, a, a cabin with no power. Yeah. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> it was awful. It was... It, I, I remember like falling asleep and just having this like vague notion of like I might not wake up like yeah. it might get so cold in the middle of the night that I just might not wake up and this movie might kill me. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I uh, you had to cut me open and crawl inside of me for. Um... Yeah, I did the tauntaun. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you were like I thought he smelled bad on the outside, and I was like, fuck <laughs> off. Um, did you ever? I, I actually the only proof that we ever did that because he never produced he never edited the movie right <clears throat> the only uh, proof that we have is i made a documentary about it oh yeah have you never seen it no i didn't know about this yeah you should you should search for uh the making of branding the aliens or i'll message it to you but it, it's uh i was running a camcorder through that whole experience Oh. And you're in it. I mean, you're, you're we're talking the next morning about like, you know, we had to snuggle for warmth and stuff. Uh-huh. And, uh, <laughs> but you, you ended up. Yeah, you played one of the aliens the next morning. You hung in there. <clears throat> what made you hang in there? I, you didn't even really know the director that well. Who was who was the director? Dan Cohen. So a mutual uh, yeah. friend, really. Right. I mean, I think I hung in there because I just had a number of friends on the project. You were there. Uh, was Kurt Krober yeah. involved? Yeah, Kurt, Kurt, Jake, Willie, all those guys. Right. Yeah, everybody was involved, and I was just kind of like, yeah, you know, I'm along for the ride. Um, I, I'm pretty sure I was super into my Castlevania game on Nintendo DS at the time. Yes. And I, I did have a little bit of battery life left on that. So as long as I had that, I was just kind of like happy to chill in the car. Because remember the evening before we shot, we were just like, I was sitting in a car with Kurt for about five hours while people decided, you know, is, is it worth risking our life for this movie? Yeah. Uh, but actually, I don't remember anything about the movie. I played an alien. Yeah. You, you, you know, you said lines out loud. <laughs> I do remember there was a whole hullabaloo about Dutch angles the next right. morning. Yeah, yeah, well, that's really weird because of all the things I because I remember it pretty well, and I kind of spaced it. Yeah, they kept they spent so much time with a thirty five millimeter film yeah. camera. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was the other thing was they were shooting on film, so like it was an extra prohibitive format to shoot on, and all this awfulness. Hey, well, what's the what's the name of your documentary? It, it's, I think it's just called The Making of Brain-Eating Aliens. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> is, it, is it available for public consumption? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, on, um, yeah, it's on Vimeo for sure. Um, oh, I'll check it out. <laughs> you, you, ha- you have to. I, I, I made it into sort of this, um, you know. Lost in La Mancha kind of thing? Exactly. It's, it's, <laughs> it's extremely dramatic. And, um, and at the very end, I'm like, email Dan Cohen and bitch him out for never developing the film and never actually making this into <laughs> Uh, so, so did he like fail a film class because he didn't make that into? I mean, isn't that wasn't that a film two or something? Yeah, it, well, it was supposed to be like a film practicum or like a film three or it. I, I I don't know the details, but my understanding is that it was kind of like bonus credit of some kind. Like it was nothing was riding on it except for our fucking lives. Uh, yeah, my my credibility as a performer. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that too. It's like this man's on PBS. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, uh, but since then, uh, word is, is th- th- there are two things that stand out uh, that people tell me. They're like, did you hear about Robbie's in New York? And uh, he was in a p- major production of Urine Town, and, uh, and, he's, and he toured with Avenue Q. Um, so I want to hear about both of those. Um, but maybe we should start kind of early on, because we, maybe we should do sort of your origin story lead up to that. 
Oh, oh wow. Well, it all began on a, on a foggy, dewy morning. <laughs> when your mom uh, got Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess in November of 82. Um, no, I, uh, okay, so let's see, like a quick, a quick uh, once over of my, I mean, I mean, the first glimpse I got of performing, I was in this uh, thing called Odyssey of the Mind in, uh, like, I guess, like, late elementary school, middle school that had a performance aspect to it. And you go and like compete against other, uh, Odyssey of the mind groups, uh, in your region. And that was the first time I like really got into the aspect of performing, Mm. um, the concept of performing. Um, and then as middle school and high school progressed, I became more involved in plays, uh, and and music. I was always in orchestra or, or, or band. I played saxophone and that stuff continued until the point where I was like, all right, you know, I, I want to study theater. This is going to be awesome. I'm going to be an actor. It's going to be a lot of fun and cool. Um, and I went to school at Emerson College for musical theater. And uh, I, 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 they have a great program there. I had, a, I had a wonderful time. But I actually think that more than the theater program, I learned a lot from the comedy scene yeah. at Emerson and just like writing your own material and being in a group of, of you know, hopefully like-minded people, frequently like-minded uh, people, um, that was that was a lot of fun. Um, and then after I graduated, I moved to New York. But uh, right before I did, I did do year in town at the Lyric Stage Company in Boston. It was the first uh, New England production <laughs> of year in town. Um, and I played Bobby Strong, and it was my first uh, professional role uh, out of college, and the only uh, professional theater role I'd ever had that wasn't like an ensemble type of, of role. I was playing the lead, um, and uh, it, it was a pretty good experience. Uh, it was a great show. Um, I think it freaked me out a little bit that I suddenly was like, "Oh, now I'm now I'm like the lead, and now I'm actually doing it. I'm not in school anymore. There's no safety net." So I think like it, you know, I, I got in my head a little bit about about the process um and started seeing it as like okay now it's it's really like sink or swim people are going to be reviewing reviewing me and you know i got like okay reviews and i learned like okay i should never read my reviews while i'm still doing the show because it's just clearly it's going to throw me off um and uh but yeah that, that was a great experience and then i moved to new york a few months after that and began pounding the pavement auditioning mm-hmm. yeah yeah and which brings, uh, <laughs> sorry, which brings us to today. Yeah, which brings <laughs> us today. So, um, uh, were you able to kind of leverage your experience in Urinetown in New York? I mean, surely uh, that's got it. You want to move into New York having something like that under your belt, right? Yeah, I mean, it definitely didn't hurt. It, it, it was it was good to have a lead uh, a lead role credit like that, um, especially from a, a good theater in Boston. Um, but I, I quickly learned that. Really, in New York, if you want to do Broadway, you have to have already done Broadway. Uh, it, it is very much a scene of like, you know, the same people are in shows all the time. And I don't mean to be jaded about it, but it's, it's good to, to realize what the uh, what the uh, limitations are in the scene and like what it's made up of. So that way you don't judge yourself too harshly for like, hey, why haven't I not, why have I not like made it yet? Right. Oh, because because I didn't already make it. <laughs> Um, I mean, obviously people do break through and it happens. Um, I was, uh, I was grateful and, and lucky enough to be cast in the off Broadway, uh, transfer of Avenue Q, um, in 2009 when the show closed on Broadway, I had actually been in, um, 
in callbacks for that show for a long time. I went to an open call uh, at like 8 a.m. one morning in New York. And uh, from that, I, I got uh, an actual audition. I got a callback. And at the time, the New York Times was doing an article on uh, replacing cast members in Avenue Q and like what that process is like and um, kind of like talking about some of the candidates very vaguely. I wasn't any of the candidates, but um, it, it was an interesting very publicized time for Avenue Q in terms of recasting things. Uh, I didn't make it, make the cut that time, but six months later I went to, uh, they brought me in again for puppet school, which is just essentially two days of working with someone in the Broadway company in front of mirrors with puppets from the show and kind of getting a sense of like the, the basics of puppeteering, which I didn't know a whole lot about, but I was able to pick up pretty quickly um, I played a lot with stuffed animals when I was a kid, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I made uh, a lot of you know home videos when I was like 10, 12, um, because I, I actually originally wanted to be a film director, and, uh, and I would just kind of like do the acting through stuffed animals. So this essentially was <laughs> really the same thing. Um, and I didn't make it that time. Uh, I still didn't make it. You know, I had a final callback, but I didn't make the cut. And then six months later, the whole thing happened again. I went back to puppet school. Uh, once again, had a final callback, didn't make it. Then a few months later, the show closed on Broadway, and I said, well, there, <laughs> there goes that. Um, and I actually, I never toured with Avenue Q, but they, they reopened the show off-Broadway in kind of an unprecedented move. Most of the time that doesn't happen. Shows will transfer from off-Broadway to Broadway, but they usually don't go back off-Broadway. Yeah, for anybody who doesn't know, who isn't familiar with the show, it's essentially, it was a big, you know, Tony hit. Um, Tony award-winning hit mm -hmm. um, by Bobby Lopez. It was his first show. He went on to do Book of Mormon with the South Park guys. And um, it's essentially, it, it's it's live um, puppetry, but sort of in a Muppets, Sesame Street kind of style. And the theme and comedy of the show is that you're you're watching uh, like a PBS sort of educational show, but with a with a twist. You know, it's it's tackling really large political issues and racism and and uh, homosexuality sex. and yeah, yeah and sex and um and that's and, and and you know it's it's not really um a very uh, sarcastic or or, or uh, cynical show either though it does have kind of a really nice heart at the center of it and I think that's why it yeah. kind of has done as well as it has. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was sort of an upset that year, 2003, at the Tonys. It, it beat Wicked uh, for Best Musical, which, you know, nobody would have thought no. would have happened. Um, and, in fact, still, you know, Wicked is still running on Broadway. So it didn't hurt Wicked that, that it lost, but certainly Avenue Q wouldn't have existed to this day if it hadn't won uh, Best Musical because it was just kind of uh, an underdog. You know, what, what is this show? There's yeah. those puppets and, and there's the puppets having sex. Like, what is this? Um and it's not based on the music of uh, of the the Four Seasons or Brian Wilson or something. Um, yeah. You know, it's sort of uh, out of out of step with a lot of what makes a Broadway show successful, and yet it was successful. Um, so then, yeah, it moved back off Broadway, and I was finally offered uh, a swing position, which in this case meant that I was I was covering. Um, all the guys in the show. I was an understudy for all, all of the, the male parts in the show, um, including mostly puppet characters like Trekkie Monster and, and Nikki, uh, which all employed different types of puppeteering and, and different character voices. Uh, and I, I was like overwhelmed at first, but it turned out that I, I couldn't have been more in my element and had just such a blast doing it. I ended up moving, moving into one of the roles full time when someone else left the show and I ended up playing Nikki Trekkie for about a year and a half uh, of a total of three and a half years with the show. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, it's kind of interesting that they sent you to puppet puppet school before even casting you. I mean, they I guess they just want trained people for whatever they want them for. Yeah, I mean, it's it was more, it was less about training and more like, is this person are they picking up the basic concepts? Oh, can they do it? Yeah, yeah. Can they do it? Can do they know that when the cons, you know, in Avenue Q, the puppets aren't the puppeteers aren't hidden. They're they're visible on stage mm-hmm. right next to the puppet. They wear sort of dark drab clothing so that you're not focusing on them as much as the the brightly colored puppets. But um, there's they don't try to hide the puppeteer. So there is kind of this. Uh, I want to say uh, symbiosis between the puppeteer and the puppet of them kind of doing the same thing. So when a puppet looks stage right, the idea is that you're also looking stage right with gotcha. the puppet. And basically you follow the puppet's eyeline all the time so that the audience kind of the lines get blurred between, mm-hmm. you know, is is the puppeteer also the puppet, um, which is kind of the idea so that they're not break they're not. Uh, breaking their own fourth wall and kind of like looking between the puppet and the puppeteer. It's all just one unit, essentially. Yeah, that puppet and that performer are one character, and you can project onto either one of them. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But so in that way, it's really pretty dissimilar from from Sesame Street or from... uh, Right. Yeah. Um, And I also imagine like you're not going to necessarily cast... um, people who have been in the puppet industry for a long time, you want to cast actors and singers. Um, well, originally they, it was actually the opposite. They, they wanted people because they didn't think people were going to be able to pick up puppeteering well enough and in time. So they actually, the original Broadway company was largely made up of people who had been, uh, puppeteers on Sesame street or other, uh, programs, other television programs. Um, and as those people began to leave the show, there's, there are a lot of actors in New York, but there are not a lot of puppeteers. Um, there's really not a lot of puppeteers anywhere by comparison with actors, at least. Um, so they started running out of puppeteers to bring in and they decided, Oh, okay, maybe we can start to just teach, you know, the average actor to, to puppeteer. And that's sort of where the concept of the puppet school came from, because not everyone can pick up the basics of it, but I think most people can. Um, and that's sort of, that was sort of why that, came into existence as, as a filter for, for the actors who could figure out basic puppeteering. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I guess you would run out of puppet people a lot quicker than you would run out of like people yeah. interested in acting. It seems like it's almost in a lot of ways, a uh, I would hate to call it a dead art. I'm sure there's lots of people that still do it, but every project I've ever followed, like, um, you know, even just going back to like the Phantom Menace when they needed to get like Yoda back. I mean, Yoda looked so amazing in Empire Strikes Back. And then mm-hmm. they brought him back for Phantom Menace and he was this like fucked up sock puppet. <laughs> I was just like, I don't, and then they, <laughs> they went back and they're like, fuck that. Let's just CG it. Right. Oh yeah. Cause he like corroded or whatever. Yeah. Or not, what, was that did he actually bu- corrode or was it that their perspective had shift through years, shifted through years of like seeing CGI characters. They suddenly were like, Oh, this doesn't look good. Yeah, I don't know. I, I it, it definitely looked like a diff, like they made a different puppet to me than huh. the one from the the past. Like it was a different color. The eyes were sinking. Um, I don't know. I don't know the story behind that, but but Lucas uh, Lucas did right out. Uh, <laughs> Lucas Lucas has destroyed those movies. Yes. Um, yeah, I love I love seeing puppets in in films. It, it rarely happens anymore, but I always I think it's so much more convincing. Oh yeah. I I think you if just watching Dark Crystal man like I think that is the shit like yeah. those puppets look real they're they are real characters with you know with a few exceptions of like oh that's a little wonky um 
I, I, I would so much rather see a movie like that than, uh, geez, I don't know, like Tron 2.0. I mean, it's kind of apples to oranges there, but um, mm. I, I just think that uh, seeing when you when you see something that is actually existing in in the third dimension on film. It makes a difference. Yeah, yeah, for your viewing experience, you'll for, you'll forgive um, what doesn't look quite right about it because it actually does exist. Yeah, uh, I was watching um, just recently the just to go back to Yoda real quick. I was watching this little kind of retrospective on creating that puppet and what went into it, and um, and it, it revolutionized. I mean, that it was. I think they did Labyrinth after that. Um, mm-hmm. And and that was when they were really getting into like motorized faces and multiple uh, controllers for you know different you know eyes mouth cheeks, but but Yoda wasn't as sophisticated and um and they they were kind of at a challenge where they're like we have to bring this thing to life it doesn't always look that great and the way they did that was basically to improvise Yoda with Luke with R two and as soon as it's moving and doing things just like acting like as soon as you're a little more free to move you know suddenly you start you know you make these discoveries. Um, mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened. You really can't do that with an animated character. Everything has to be pre-planned, and it either works or it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. There's no room for improvisation. Yeah. Did you guys? Um. I mean, so so you take something that's kind of already this big Tony Award-winning hit. Um. People want to see their Avenue Q the way they want to see their Avenue Q. <laughs> do you have any room to, um, you know, change blocking or, or do anything with it, or do you have do you have a cookbook you got to follow? <laughs> yeah, it it actually is sort of a following following the instructions in the cookbook mm-hmm. kind of a, a thing. By that point, and when the show moved off Broadway, they didn't really reconceptualize anything. Yeah. Some blocking had to change because of stage dimensions being different off Broadway, but basically it was the exact same show, same set, all the same puppets. Um, they cut the orchestra down from six members to four members, which yeah. I have to say was a bummer because that means that they lost the banjo mm. and the tenor banjo in that, in that show was so great. You know, the, the song, if you were gay has a lot of, uh, just awesome, like tenor banjo strums. And that, that was a real bummer to lose. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of once you're in the role, can you mix things up? Yeah, a little bit. Um, at first when I took over, I mean, certainly as a swing, when I was, you know, understudying parts and I would just go on for one performance or a couple performances, sometimes at a moment's notice, there wasn't really much of a thought to like, oh, how am I going to do this differently? Or how am I going to like be true to myself? And like, can I mix things up? Cause it was mostly just like, oh shit, I got to get these lines right. I got to like, make sure I don't screw up everybody else on stage. And there is sort of a, uh, a pressurized feel when you know that you're going on and you don't normally go on. Um, it's it, it it kind of <laughs> eliminates the uh, desire to like mix things up, I guess. Um, but once I was uh, once I took over for the role, I did over time find ways to kind of you know make make things my own. Um, but uh, the stage management was really um, sort of against making huge new choices, which I have to say, like, that makes sense because that's their job. Their job is to make sure the show operates smoothly and that nothing nothing really changes. And that's just all coming down from the, the producers, down from the pipeline. So it's maybe not, like, the, the most artistically... Uh, you can't just... I, I couldn't follow my, my every whim on stage, but um, I actually think that it's good to have limitations... Um, in your art and and to have boundaries so that you know 
when it is appropriate to mix things up and when it's more like, ah, I should just do what, what the job is and not yeah. try to like make too much out of it. I remember, um, I was in a, an Emerson production of Cannibal the Musical, which is, ah. where, yeah, uh, which is where I met, um, John Ryan and Ben Fisher, who are guys who are now kind of in my little company of actors who I always do things with. Mm-hmm. And, um, I remember some, you know, some of us knew the material really well and we're just kind of sticking to it. And, um, and some people didn't, you're in that kind of awkward rehearsal phase where you don't know if we're fucking up or if just a few people don't really know the lines. If it's something that simple, it's Mm -hmm. like, you don't really know the lines yet. So we can't kind of get this off its feet. Um, and I remember it it was, it was kind of funny. Um, I'm not really an actor, but I love that show, so I jumped in. Um, and I can act competently, but I'm I'm not a st- I'm in any way a studied actor. But the other guys were, and it was always really interesting to watch this um, uh, this urge to like when there's because a, a show like that has to be tight. Like the the cues have to be very very tight. Everything is about the timing and and turning it right around. And if somebody kind of dropped the timing. Somebody kind of somebody that, that that was aware of that would fill it in with a little bit of not quite improv, but maybe a murmur or maybe some body motion. They would always kind of fill uh-huh. in those gaps. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. And um, totally. And and I remember our director was like, guys, like this is a very funny show. Um, like exactly as written, exactly as blocked. Um, just do that. <laughs> you know? Right. You don't need to add anything to it. Yeah, but I, that was always interesting. It was like, the, I'm not sure anybody was trying to impress with their improv. They were using it to, to fill uh, that gap as a patch. Yeah, to yeah, f- yeah, right. To fill that gap because you can feel with good comedy writing, you can feel almost. Um, I don't want to say like the pacing exactly, but you feel almost like the metronome just going of like, yes. this is the, it is the pace. You, like, you can feel, you can feel like the gears kind of like coming together, not in a way where you're like aware of it being this mechanical thing, but it just feels like there's a flow to it. So yeah, when something drops out, totally, it makes sense to like, uh, there can't be dead space here. You got to keep it, got to keep it moving. Let's try to make but, that seem intentional. Right, right. I think Avenue Q is a very, very similar kind of show Yeah. to that. Where, yeah. it, where the cues are everything. Yeah, like the, the pacing. And, and you don't have to like worry about being funny. All you have to do is just say the line. Like that, that was something that I really uh, struggled with at first was like, ah, I don't know if I'm all that funny. Like, you know, what am I doing that's funny? I sort of like started thinking about the whole funny thing too much. And I, I think that that's a pitfall for, um, for performers, especially when you're doing material that's uh, contemporary material that's really well written. You don't need to worry about being funny because it's just it's already there. All you have to do is be sincere because yeah. the characters aren't you know the characters aren't trying to be funny. Uh, Trekkie Monster when he's singing about the internet is for porn is not trying to be funny. He's like making uh, a very factual blunt statement like yo you think the internet's for this but like how can you think that it's clearly for viewing pornography right right <laughs> and like that's it. He's not trying to be funny with it. Um, so, I mean, that's like one of, you know, several realizations I've made as, as a, a working actor. One, one, one less thing to, uh, to overthink is the funny thing. Well, that just brings it back to kind of what you learned in acting school and what's in every text, which is like you just have to believe what you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's the same thing for probably musical theater where it's like, do you really need to – I mean, you know I, – I don't want to sound stupid and say like you don't have to be a good singer, but do you, you don't need to focus on – how you, how amazing of a singer you are as much as you have to understand why this person is singing the song and uh, and just believe in that. Um, 
Some of yeah. the, some of the best performances I've ever seen are, are uh, you know, I wouldn't call it conventionally awesome singing, but right. I but I'm so into what they're doing and what they're saying, and you know. Mm-hmm. I wish that I could say that that was the case for for most musical theater, but I feel like the commercial stuff anyway that I. I tend to see in New York, and there there are actually plenty of shows that I haven't uh, caught up on uh, at the moment, have not been get, given a chance to see. But uh, frequently, unfortunately, I think especially with like young performers, people get caught up in singing too pretty, and that's what I, I mean. Yeah, and and not uh, you know not acting, and unfortunately, I don't see it nipped in the bud like I see it in performance. Um, and it just makes me sad because, like, I mean, for one, I can't sing that pretty, so maybe I'm screwed. Maybe I'm, maybe that's why I'm not uh, getting cast. But moreover, like, I just don't think that that kind of performance is going to stay with the audience as much as when you see someone who's uh, who's just bare and vulnerable yeah. and, like, everything's exposed. And, like, you see the thought process and you see, like, their heart beating and stuff. Like, that's way more interesting and that that will like haunt you and chill you to the bone and you'll remember that after you leave more than just like oh dude that that guy sang so high and or her voice is so smooth and silky or whatever like i just think like that stuff and it also comes and goes you're not gonna be able to do that in 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 30 years unfortunately with an eight day a week schedule yeah that's yeah. that's true too well the one the one that comes to mind is like uh ted neely played jesus in jesus christ superstar for like decades uh-huh. and um he, he was never a good singer. I mean, you know, at, at least not in not in the traditional sense. Um, but he played that fucking role for decades, and there's a reason for that. Um, mm-hmm. Because you just believe him in the role. He's like you said, he's extremely raw. Right. Um, so, uh, is is Avenue Q all wrapped up now, or? It's it's not. It's still going. I'm wrapped up with it, at least for the time being. Um, I left in December to do a new show, a musical called Nerds, that's um, based on. Uh, it's like loosely based on the relationship between Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. Oh, wow. Uh, so, and I played Paul Allen, who was the co-founder of Microsoft. Um, so I did that in January in North Carolina, and there are plans for it to move to Philadelphia, excuse me, later this year, and then possibly New York at some point. But I'm, I'm currently not in a show other than doing uh, PBS Peg Plus Cat voiceover stuff. I didn't. I, I guess I should have known that like PBS has studios in New York. I thought they were all Boston based. Uh, well, this I think this studio might be separate from uh, the larger PBS operation. This oh, they is contract just, them out. Yeah, this is just the production company. Nine Eight Seven Productions is is the company that's doing this particular series. Yeah, um, <laughs> the what like the early ones that come to mind are like remember Zoom from that was always out of mm-hmm. like Boston, Mass, and yeah, totally. Is that, that that old thing? Wishbone. Um, fucking Wishbone. Wishbone. Somebody reminded me of that the other night, and I had totally forgotten about that show and forgotten that it was on PBS. That show was awesome. It was pretty good. It was actually like, yeah, it had had a little bit of a budget behind it. And uh-huh. um, yeah. And it introduced kids to like, you know, meaningful works of literature in a, in a fun, cool way. History and literature. I remember yeah. I remember one. So for anybody who who's too young to remember or, or just doesn't remember at all, it was uh, it was a little dog. I don't remember exactly what kind. It's um, basically the kind that you see in like Target ads and shit. Yeah, it was like a Jack Russell Terrier. Yes. Yeah. Um, and he, uh, I don't know, he was always up to no good or he was kind of like mischievous. And then somehow that segued into uh, uh, Joan of Arc or whatever. 
Right. I do. I remember. <laughs> I'll always remember that. Like there, there, there we are in this little like the you know the little puppy is going to tell us a story about literature, and I I do remember them burning Joan of Arc at the uh, at the stake. Oh. Yeah. This is a quick little shot, and it was like, and then we burned her. <laughs> oh. <laughs> By the way. <laughs> By the way. Little, uh, moving on. <laughs> um, wow. Harsh. Yeah. Poor Wishbone. Was Wishbone Joan of Arc? Or was Wish like one of the persecutors of Joan of Arc? (laughs) He was like the talking bicycle of the whole fucking story. (laughs) He lured Joan of Arc back to the fucking dumpster to uh, to Kurt (laughs) to get raped by a fire. (laughs) Right. Um, So if if anybody were to you know especially if they're like eighteen, nineteen, twenty. Um, and they're thinking about packing up, going to New York. Um, you've been doing it for, you know, seven, eight years now longer. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, I mean, what, what would you tell younger Rob? Wow. What would I tell younger Rob? I mean, I, th- I don't think I would tell him too much. I think I would say like, yeah, man, do it. Like if you want to do it, do it. I think a lot of people will say, um, when you hear, you know, when you go to talks where like some successful veteran actors like talking to youngsters, they'll say like, if there's anything else you could do in the world, do it. Because like, if you have any sort of fallback plan, then you should do that instead. Cause ultimately you'll just fall back to that fallback plan. Anyway, I think it's an interesting idea. Um, and I, I think that there are probably people in those audiences that are actually like seriously debating whether or not they should do it. And for those people, it's probably valuable to hear that information. They could be like, okay, cool. I'm going to go be an accountant. Um, but for people who really like performing and know that they might not make a lot of money and like, they're kind of like daunted by that. Like, I don't know. I think it, you know, you just got to do it anyway and you got to be okay with, with not making money and you got to find ways to make money and have day jobs. And I don't really have an answer for that stuff. Cause I'm, I'm still like, struggling with that and presently on unemployment myself. Um, but, uh, I just think that you got to create on your own too, is, is an important part of it. And like, that's, that's a one main thing that's kept me going. Um, despite not, uh, not having a lot of, um, of, of casting in, in the last, you know, year or two is I, I have a band. I write songs with the band and that's another kind of performance. We play live every couple of weeks. We have, we've been around for four years. We have a pretty decent following now. Um, a little shout out. We're called the hollows. Um, is there like a web, <laughs> website for that or anything? Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's the hollows It's not the hollows. A lot of people think it's like after the, that Harry Potter book and the movie came out, people were like, are you a Harry Potter band? It's like, no, we're not the hollows, the hollows, the hollows. It's all O's, no A's. Um, what kind of band would like try to like further the Harry Potter franchise? Like an indie band. Yeah. Well, there is, there was that band called, um, Oh, what was it called? Uh, there was some Harry Potter themed indie band a couple years ago that was like super popular. It was like Harry and the Harry and the Potters. They were called Harry and the Potters. And, uh, their first album was like something called like Voldemort can't stand the rock or something like that. (laughs) It was something I heard that they were good, but evidently not, you know, not to burst your bubble, but I guess there was at least one band themed that way. Fair enough. (laughs) Uh, But we are not, we are not. I mean, yeah, it's, it just sounds like, you know, the, the thing I saw so I'm, I'm on the film side of all this and uh, it's, oh, right, yeah. it's the same goddamn thing. But basically, um, 
I don't know. I would I would do this stuff for free. I do do this stuff for free. Right. Um, it, it's my natural state of being. It's what I enjoy doing. And and mm-hmm. um, I don't get too caught up in trying to turn something I would do for free into something that pays lots of money. Uh, I just keep creating. And guess what? Like the more you, there's a direct correlation between the amount you're producing and the amount of attention and the amount of involvement you have in what you want to do. Absolutely. If you're not doing it all the time, if you're waiting for money opportunities to come along and you're Mm. not actually creating stuff, that sucks. Like then if a money opportunity comes along, what, how are you going to be good at, how are you going to make good on that? If you're not, if you're not in the habit of creating stuff, have you read the artist's way? No. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a touchy feely book, but, um, there's, there's some really good concepts in it. And one of like the main, uh, sort of like, um, aphorisms that I walked away with, from after reading it was uh, quantity over quality mm-hmm. to like not oh, yeah. be not be like per, you know too concerned with perfectionism and not not tinkering with each little thing you create just be like okay that's the thing that I created today tomorrow I'm going to create something else because the more that you get in that habit of creating the more things are just naturally going to get better over time yeah I mean I was talking to Adam uh, last night for this podcast and um, right. Adam Dio. And he, he's at this point, his filmography is just tremendously huge. Um, he just makes one thing after another. And um, he doesn't really even pay that much attention to the things he's already made. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think I knew some of his movies better than he did. And um, he just moves right on. And then, you know, we talked kind of afterwards and he was like, yeah, you know, I'm not super proud of this one or that one or <laughs> any of them. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, which is a natural thing for an artist to say. But he, he, he was just like, you know. But the amount that I've done has afforded me all these new opportunities. Um, and, and, and there were a lot of movies made for a thousand bucks before he started making movies for six hundred thousand bucks. Right. Um, so that, that that's always my advice is just keep, uh, keep doing it because you like to do it. And if you don't like to do it, stop doing it. Right. Exactly. And, and I think that that's really valuable. You, you actually you were asking me earlier about um, do I contribute, uh, you know, songs like drink me up to anything else. Um, and I was thinking about it. Um, I don't really write that kind that, that was sort of a, a a one-off thing specific for that movie. But, um, in, in creating music more, more regularly and trying to say, okay, not a week is going to go by where I don't have one new recording of Mm. a, a song. And actually like in a week, you know, really I should be able to do more than that, but at least having that as a bare minimum, um, has actually uh, kind of opened some doors. Uh, I had a friend, uh, Wes Taylor and Mitch Jarvis, who have a um, sort of an actor-themed web series called It Could Be Worse, uh, which is definitely worth checking out. It's really well shot. It's funny stuff. It's also kind of like dark and weird and um, kind of like uh, opens up to uh, to the viewer like what it's like being a New York actor and just how like how shitty it can be sometimes and how great it can be sometimes too. Um, but I was just sort of like writing songs idly, uh, you know, earlier this year and my girlfriend really liked them and she was sending them to these guys that make this web series. And um, yeah, I, I would never have thought to do anything like that, but uh, both songs ended up being used in the web series. And, you know, that just got me a, a shout out. Um, in, in the credits and, you know, my SoundCloud, you know, views of those songs went through the roof for a few days, which was nice. Um, and I think you have to be better. I, I, I have to be better about, um, finding opportunities for stuff. And that wasn't a money-making opportunity. It was just like, oh, I'm creating stuff. Why not do something with it? Cause it's not just enough to like make something on your own. I think that it takes on a more, 
legitimate vibe in your own head when you start talking to other people about it and start trying to find an outlet for it. But there's also such a thing as like make it and throw it on YouTube and, and, uh, who the fuck knows? I mean, the, I've made three going on four feature length films now and, um, and they, you know, they, they all have their followings and people and people dig them and I'm proud of them and whatnot, but they're not the things that I'm known for. Uh, the things right. the things I'm known for, I made in a weekend and through through on YouTube, right? Um, yeah. And and things I never expected anyone to watch ever. And that's not unusual. That's not just me. Um, that there's a lot of people who have that same exact story, especially for comedy stuff, because comedy is so. Uh, I was talking to Julian Higgins, who who uh, we went to school with, and he has won a Student Academy Award and all this t- stuff. But he was talking about how comedy is especially an incredibly shareable thing online. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can share a bit of comedy with somebody on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, you're not going to share like a compelling human truth. <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, so there, there, there's lots of room for that. Hey, I wanted to tell you that uh, I think you'll probably find this cool. I shot a movie last fall, my first feature, and the DP was Dean Coondy. Dean Coondy? Do I know who he is? Well, he was the DP for Halloween. Um, oh, for- yeah. Hello 13. He did. He basically did like every John Carpenter movie as the DP and then a whole bunch of stuff like Apollo 13. I think Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Um, he was, you know, he's just like this awesome <laughs> legend amazing. of uh, when it comes to DPs. Yeah. And I, I, he's directed some stuff, too. Um, but that was that was a lot of fun. That's really cool. What's the movie? And what, what, what was your role in it? Uh, well, <laughs> it's it's uh, the movie right now anyway. And I think the title is being changed. Uh, the movie is called Something Whispered. And it's it's a bit difficult to describe. It's um, it's about the Underground Railroad in the 1850s. Uh, Starring Cuba Gooding Jr. Right. Um, so he he and his family are slaves that escape at the beginning of, of the film, and I play uh, I, I'm sort of a bit part. Um, I, I play one of three musicians who are this like this traveling band of musicians that are actually one. They're basically a moving stop on the Underground Railroad. They sort of hide slaves and act as if they're musicians that are just traveling to the next gig. Um, and that the slaves that are with them are their slaves uh, and not slaves that are running. Um, so I played, yeah, this dude who plays banjo. I had like one line, um, and uh, but I had a bunch of sh- a bunch of shots with Cuba Gooding Jr. And uh, you know, we shot over the course of two weeks. I was in the background of a lot of things, and then uh, later on, um, I don't want to give too much away, but later on, we get caught by the slave hunters after the slaves have. Uh, have uh, moved on to the next stop on the railroad, and uh, I get interrogated. It was a very intense scene. Oh, so you you so you must be full blown SAG at this point. I mean, you're talking well, that, and... now. I'm a must join. I'm yeah. a must. Join. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really great. How did you land that? That was just through my agents. Um, the dire- so it, it kind of worked out in my favor because the director of this movie, Peter Cousins. It's his first film. He's actually a theater guy. He's Australian. Um, I believe that he is the artistic director of some theater in Australia. I'm not sure. But um, he's done a lot of – he has a musical theater background. And for whatever reason – because well, this movie has um, a lot of musical passages. And it's not really a musical, but there's a lot of like hymn singing and, uh, you know, spirituals and – the other, the other part of the movie that makes it difficult to, to describe is that there's a story within a story that takes place in the 1700s 
about um, the guy who wrote, uh, I think his name is John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. I guess he was a, a slave uh, trader. And it's so it flashes back and forth between Cuba Gooding Jr.'s storyline in the 1850s and this other dude's storyline in the 17-whatever, um, with him kind of grappling with the idea of like, oh, I'm a slave trader, but I'm a man of God. And like, you know, can I be both of these things? And at the end, he writes Amazing Grace. Um, and uh, so there's a bunch of musical things in in the movie, and I think the director wanted to, uh, I guess, you know, he, he ended up casting predominantly musical theater people for a lot of the uh, smaller roles in the film. Terrence Mann is in the movie, um, Bart Shadow, uh, just a couple of other people who aren't really necessarily film. I mean, Terrence Mann is in a lot of films, but uh, people who are known more for their, their theater background, I guess, to kind of support the, the musical identity of the movie. That's great. Is what, yeah, do you so, know when it comes out? Um, I don't know. I know I, I went in and did ADR for it about a month ago, and they were pretty much almost done with all the post stuff at that point. Um, and they had told me at the time that they were submitting it to festivals. I, I yeah. believe it's still going to get a theatrical release, though. Right. Uh, right. Bill Sadler is also in, in the movie, William Sadler, who was sure. just in Iron Man 3. He played the bad guy in this, and I had a couple scenes with him, uh, and he could not be a cooler dude. I have to go on record saying that Bill Sadler is like one of the nicest guys ever. Let's see, probably best known for uh, Shawshank Redemption. Die Hard 2. Die Hard 2. Yeah, he's naked in Die Hard 2. Yeah, he is naked in Die Hard 2. <laughs> He's not naked in this one, sadly. I'm not seeing it then. <laughs> um, one thing I was I was going to ask you, uh, I always thought, you know, if I were if I were a, this is easy for me to say because I'm a filmmaker, but if I were um, a performer and I was looking for work, I would be inclined to to want to make my own work, to make my mm-hmm. own opportunities. And uh, you kind of came from. I mean, you strike me as somebody who's interested in doing more than you, you spend a few more plates than just acting. Uh, have yeah. you ever considered, you know, and you wanted to be a director at one point, have you ever considered making your own stuff? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think more though, I'm, I'm interested in, in the, the writing side of yeah. things. Um, I mean, I've never tried writing anything beyond sketch comedy, uh, which I did continue to do after college. Uh, I, I got involved in the improv and sketch scenes here in, in New York. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's totally it's a good it's a it's a that's a good question for you to pose me because uh, I've actually been feeling like I, I should try to <laughs> try to pick up some more skills and and keep the the wheels spinning just to keep myself busy. So maybe it is time. I don't know. There's a whole whole like the whole technical side to film that I don't know anything about. Um, yeah. And I'm sure, you know, I could take a crash course and learn some basics, but it is a little bit daunting. We also have so many film friends from college. I mean, I, I for one, yeah. totally, total resource for anything mm-hmm. like that. If you ever wanted to do anything like that. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you're in Boston, right? I'm in Boston. Yeah. I, I work full time at Emerson. Oh, okay. So what I did, I want, I wanted to get a, um, an MFA uh, okay. so that I could teach. Mm-hmm. And um, but I didn't want to pay money to do it, <laughs> so <laughs> right. so I got hired full time uh, in their IT department. I like ran their labs, and oh. uh, and that that if you work full time, you can get the tuition benefit and you can just get a degree for free. So that's what I did, and then it kind of led to like I became their networking guy, and now I'm their networking manager. So now like I kind of like am their main IT man. Um, I'm not, you know, it, it very much pays the bills and, yeah. uh, and it allows me to, you know, I don't have to make a Kickstarter every time I want to make a fucking movie. Right. You know? Totally. So, like, uh, Zach Braff. You fucking Zach. Come on. Dude, um, 
Am I am I like off base by being offended by that whole thing? No. Um, and and the same goes ridiculous. for and the same goes for Veronica Mars. Yeah. If anybody's not familiar, basically, it, it it's getting to the point now where so Kickstarter was sort of used as a way to crowdsource projects that people who don't have access to funding um, can you know kind of cut out the middleman, don't go to investors, but have lots of people invest, and you can kind of make. Uh, make your stuff for, for some amount of money, 3000 bucks. You know, some people have made a lot more than that. Um, but now it, it's getting to the point where well-known shows, well-known actors um, are basically just mitigating all risk of whether or not their product will work by having everybody. I mean, essentially they're using Kickstarter to pre-order the thing before, <laughs> b- before, before they've uh, made it. And what that means is that like you know, Veronica Mars is HBO, I believe. And yeah. it means that HBO doesn't have to wonder whether or not it's a risk worth, worth taking. Everybody can just put their money down in advance. And yeah, I, you know, I don't know that if there's a finite amount of money that they're kind of drying up, but I like to think that there is that like, you know, if you're, if anybody's willing to put money towards a Kickstarter, it should be towards an independent project and an independent person. Should it not? I mean, yes, I think so. Well, I, I also think that there's just kind of like an inherent entitlement mm-hmm. Uh, attitude behind it um, that Zach Braff shouldn't have to. I mean, Zach Braff is a millionaire, but why would Zach Braff have to put in his own? I mean, I know he is putting in some of his own money for this, but why should he, as an established actor, have to talk to producers and talk to people and try to get the movie made when he could just get his millions of fans to each put down a couple bucks and then boom, he doesn't, he has full rights to casting and everything like that. And uh, yeah, I just think that like, I, I see that as a dangerous uh, paradigm to start putting in place because <laughs> all, all it's going to take is for, you know, uh, the Weinstein brothers to be like, oh, cool. So, like, we need to just figure out a way to, to do this guerrilla style. Yeah. Um, and then we don't have to spend any of our own money anymore. Um, I don't know. It just seems scary to me. It may get to that point. I mean, it, the the I think the plus side of it is it starts to cut out the middleman. A little bit more. And I think the middleman should be cut out because they they do, you know, you've probably heard some stuff from Steven Soderbergh or from Kevin Smith about the costs of promoting a film. Yeah. And um, and they've just taken to some of these guys have just taken to uh, touring with their film and four walling it, just renting theaters on their own. But I I like that a lot more because you've made your movie already. And um, if they show up, they show there's still a risk. I like the idea of risk still playing a role in this as opposed to like, Uh well, you know, we we didn't we weren't able to fund it, so we won't make it. It's like, no, that and movies really shouldn't be all that expensive to make either. Um, I think a lot of people still I can get real soapboxy about this real quick, but I I think a lot of people um, find validity in their projects based on how much money the project has. And they they don't necessarily think about, well, what do I need the money for? They just want to know that there's some money there to spend. And Uh um, it's prohibitive to making lots of art like Adam Dio or like myself or like anybody else. You you want to just be creating and money shouldn't be getting in the way of that. Yeah. And like that's, yeah, it, it, with music too. You see, uh, there are so many of my friends uh, whose bands, you know, their albums are being produced in basements uh, in in Bushwick on Pro Tools because, like, that's all you need now. Yeah. And you don't you don't need a record label. You don't need all that money. 
um, it really the the money does start to come in with uh, promoting stuff and, right. and publicizing things, and like that's that that's still a hurdle to jump. But it's an exciting time right now because I feel like, as you know, like art is is so much more readily creatable. I can mm-hmm. pick up the iPad that I'm skyping you with right now and make a short film on it if I wanted to, and it yeah. you know it probably wouldn't be too shitty. It might be a little shitty. Yeah, uh, but uh, that's you know it, anybody can make art, and that's also a problem because maybe not everyone's supposed to make art i don't know like that's a that's a huge debate we were talking about youtube there earlier and like that's you know the idea of youtube celebrity is is an interesting one that i could we could pontificate about for a long time i'm sure sure uh words of wisdom from rob morris um <laughs> thanks very much for doing this uh is, is there kind of a place where people can just like catch up on everything you're doing so they just a one place for uh, all that stuff hmm. I don't have my own website like there's not a robmorrison.com or if there is you shouldn't go to it because it's not going to involve me it'll probably be that newscaster Rob Morrison um, the curse of your life yes I know although I think that he was involved in some like domestic violence dispute with his wife so I think that he got fired from New York one I believe so maybe maybe the bane of my existence is no more I don't know famous um, children performer uh, Rob <laughs> Morrison beating his uh, wife. Yes. Um, no, I, in terms of keeping up with me, I guess uh, maybe my Twitter account is probably the best. It's uh, I'm at, I'm at Twitter. It's you can just look up Rob Morrison or my account name is digital shrub, like a digital plant yeah. shrub, digital shrub. shrub. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, um, thanks again for doing it. It was Really awesome. Thanks for having me. There's yeah. so many things I didn't get to uh, catch up with you about, but I guess that means we'll just have to talk again sometime. Yeah. Well, not through a podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And and the springboard for that could be, I, I would love for you to watch The Making of Brady and the Aliens immediately. Dude, and, and that's get... what I'm going to do right after this. I'm excited. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll talk soon, I hope. All right. Yeah, totally. Thanks, Frankie. All right. Take care.
drink me up. You gotta drink me up. Girl, you gotta drink me up. You gotta drink me up. Girl, you gotta drink me up. You gotta drink me up. Yeah, girl, you gotta drink me up. You gotta drink me up. great it really is it makes me want to say hooray there's so much to share with you by my side oh bicycle won't you take me for a ride won't you take me for a ride i want to be taken for a ride won't someone take me for a ride ride da 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 ride da 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 talking bicycle where are we going? My house is back that way. Don't you trust me, Timmy? Well, yeah. Then relax. Just sit back and enjoy the ride. Wanna go for a ride. One less wheel than a tricycle. That's my talking bicycle. A noun is a special kind of word. It's a person, place, or thing, unlike an adjective or verb. It could be waffles, or corn pops, pancakes, or flip flops. Oh, a noun is a special kind of word.